Hello everyone, uh, my name is David Morris. Uh, I'm the Assistant Interfaith Advisor at the University of Westminster, and I welcome you to this event as part of our programme for uh, Interfaith Week this year. Uh, we began this uh, yearly programme uh, on Monday with my uh, colleague Yusuf um, providing a, a wreath-making workshop. Um, a group of students joined us, venturing out around the grounds gather materials before returning to the boardroom we had booked for the event to wind willow branches and then adorn them with the plant life they had chosen to gather in. It felt good to bring leaf and branch into the somewhat sterile atmosphere of a contemporary meeting room. And as we worked on our creations, the conversations turned to matters of deeper resonance, appearing in both the banter, the genuine appreciation for each other's creations and also the silent concentration. This evening's gathering is an attempt at another kind of weaving, one in which we will together make a wreath of whatever wisdom we have harvested in how to effectively raise awareness of the climate crisis in our community. On a personal note, this event was my attempt at doing just that. But in the lead up to the event, I've wondered whether this question is the right question, or at least the kind of question that gives people a way in. So I've learned something along the way. The title I chose speaks to the potential for a splitting of obedience, a time in which the call to heal our relationship with the earth inspires in some an obedience that results in the practice of civil disobedience. Today, a friend of mine has been sentenced to four months in prison for their role in blocking the M25 during the recent actions of Insulate Britain. On the BBC Radio 4 News at lunchtime, I heard a substantial item discussing the need for insulation. Whilst on message boards and elsewhere, we see intense disparagement for these tactics. Sometimes we may touch into a feeling of urgency to act and look for guidance from our faith or other beliefs in how to obey or to honor this call, whilst also seeking to maintain an ethical orientation in our relationships with our own faith and with wider society. All of our speakers who've gathered here this evening have been working on raising this kind of awareness. And I'm very grateful that they have joined us this evening to share some of their insights and perhaps some questions of their own. So before I introduce the first speaker, I'll just give an overview of how the evening will run, which is that we will begin, which we've done. And the speakers will speak in turn. We have five speakers joining us this evening. After the five speakers have spoken, which will range between 50 minutes and an hour, we'll have a screen break, um, bio break, or however you call it. And then we'll return to have a group discussion um, on the subjects arising. And there'll also be a chance to ask questions to the speakers or to each other. Um, and then we'll be concluding by 7.30 at the latest. If you have any technical issues you can't hear anything I'll be trying to keep my eye on the chat um, but um, yeah please post messages there um, and if you have any questions please maybe write them down as we hear the speakers um, and uh, save them for later when when there'll be a space for those um, so without further ado I'd like to introduce uh, Melanie Nazareth I'm just looking for Melanie on my screen I've got the gallery view so Melanie Nazareth, mother to four young adults and a barrister with a practice in children work, whose ecological conversion followed an encounter with Extinction Rebellion in April 2019, is an activist within Christian Climate Action. So Melanie, I'll hand over to you now. Thank you, David, uh, and good evening to everybody. It's really good to be here. Uh, talking to you about something that actually has become really critical to my identity as a Christian. David asked uh, the question, what works and what doesn't work in raising awareness um, of the climate crisis in your spiritual or faith or other community? But actually, I've amended that a little bit because I think that within a Christian context, um, there's a great deal of awareness of this climate crisis. And what I think we need is a raising of awareness of meaningful action to address that uh, climate crisis. Um, David has introduced me uh, as um, a mother to four young adults and I 
uh, earn my living as a barrister. But in fact, I'm, I'm actually pretty much a full-time activist with Extinction Rebellion and Christian Climate Action and very much uh, a part-time lawyer. And that is because um, I realized that this crisis didn't just need my awareness, but also my action. Um, and so uh, Christian Climate Action, generally known as CCA, uh, is a community of Christians described on our website as a community of Christians supporting each other to take meaningful action in the face of imminent and catastrophic anthropogenic climate breakdown. And we go on to say about ourselves, inspired by Jesus Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit, and following the example of social justice movements of the past, we carry out acts of public witness, nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience to urge those in power to make the changes needed. Um, Christian climate action actually predates uh, Extinction Rebellion. It was formed by a small group of people in about 2013. And one of its first actions was kneeling in prayer, blocking the gates to Downing Street in 2014. Um, and it was only in uh, November 2018 that it partnered with Extinction Rebellion and kind of became known as the Christians uh, of XR. And um, what we do uh, could best be described as acts of public witness, sort of performative prayer, uh, that is put prayer as protest, because although prayer is uh, something deeply personal and a communication with the divine, it also has a utilitarian capacity. And I know that lots of people will find that really uncomfortable, but it actually becomes the means through which we can take political action. And so those who pray become both strategists as well as devotional being. And so within that, we also get ourselves arrested for acts of civil disobedience. And sometimes that's as simple as blocking a road. But I think when done with this intentional um, prayerful approach, you, you become a person who is uh, doing something civilly disobedient as a form of prayer. So I think that's really important to say. And it's also probably important for me to say at this point that we do this not only as a group of Christians, but we also do this in conjunction with uh, other faith groups, so other Extinction Rebellion faith groups. We have what we call the Faith Bridge, which is the Extinction Rebellion Interfaith Alliance. And, and why that's important is that we need, we recognize that although we need to act as people of faith as Christians, we also need to bring along all sorts of other people in this journey. People of other faiths, but also people of no faith and who are spiritual but not religious. I'm going to limit myself primarily, though, to talking about um, nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience in a Christian context. So why do I think that that works and why do I think that that's what I would urge uh, people to to think about moving towards as an appropriate response to um, this crisis? Well, I don't really need to tell you that we need change at an unprecedented speed and scale. Everyone, I think, knows that the IPCC report declared code red for humanity. The challenge is how do we create this unprecedented change? And the conventional way, which is adopted by, I think, has been adopted by the majority of Christians, the conventional way to seek change in our democracies or our so-called democracies is to sign petitions, write letters to your MPs, go on a march. Uh, but I think that we have to acknowledge and be really clear about acknowledging within our faith communities the limited success of this conventional approach. Our churches really fight shy of um, getting involved in what they consider to be politics, sticking resolutely to a doctrine of being apolitical, as if apolitical was not a choice to endorse the political and social status quo injustices and all. So the first thing I think we need to focus on when we talk to uh, Christian communities is that we have to be political. And the other common narrative is that to tackle climate change, we need to look at our individual lifestyles. We need to eat less meat, recycle, buy clothes from a charity shop, take the train instead of drive. 
And this is what I'd describe as the eco-church approach. And it's very appealing to a Christian perspective that seeks to stand apart from politics. And it, it is true, it's very true that if people started eating a vegan diet, recycling, reusing rather than buying new and using public transport, we would make a difference. But I think the thing that we've got to recognize is that that difference won't be enough. And it's almost impossible in our growth driven society to live within a small enough carbon footprint, just taking those individual actions. And so the question then becomes, what would work to bring about uh, change in the way that we really need it? And I think that all Christians are, are clear about the need for prayer. But I think we need to be constantly reminding ourselves and talking within our faith communities about the equally clear mandate for action. We need to be constantly reminding ourselves that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that is um, people who are um, Bible readers in this group will recognize that. That's a, a quotation from James 2.17. And if we look back at social justice movements, the struggle for suffrage, Gandhi at Indian uh, independence, the American civil rights movement, we know that change has happened that because ordinary people took the decision to get involved in nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience. So those are levers that we can use. And I think that Christians intrinsically understand the need for both a prophetic voice and for action where love is interwoven with sacrifice because there's a really strong biblical emphasis on truth-telling and prophetic voice. The Old Testament prophets were often unpopular because they challenged people to go outside their comfort zones. They challenged people when they had gone astray. And the Jewish culture into which Jesus was born uh, was no stranger to civil disobedience. We have um, the example of Exodus when we read how Jewish midwives conspired to evade the command of the Egyptians to kill male babies. And, and the book of Daniel in the Bible has been described as a charter for civil disobedience. And we have to acknowledge if we're talking to Christians that Jesus not only followed that tradition of the prophetic voice, uh, reminding people of uncomfortable truths, for instance, in his pronouncement that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, but he also had a radical message of civil disobedience. There's the story of Jesus going into the temple and being so pained by injustice that was going on in the temple that he overturned the tables of the moneylenders and drove people out of the temple. And he did this knowing that it would lead to his arrest and death. So he didn't do it, not realizing the really serious consequences. And so we need to accept that that, that is a path that we perhaps should follow if we are going to take the command to love God and to love your neighbor seriously. We have to remember that those commands are gritty and we have to remind people constantly of that. It's really easy as a Christian to forget those, uh, that grittiness. Jesus was gritty, he broke the religious and cultural norms, the laws of the day at every point. So why, if that's correct, aren't Christians flocking to join XR and Christian climate action? I've just walked the 500 miles to Glasgow to talk to communities, faith communities across the UK about this. And I think there are two issues. Uh, one is that Christianity is the established religion of the state. And that makes it really far from robust when there's a need to challenge the state. And maybe we need to look at that. And we need to look also at the press, which in the UK has a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. So I'm just gonna finish by talking about four things that I think we really need to focus on when we talk to, probably to all faith communities, but certainly to Christians, because I recently did a piece of action research in uh, my masters, which really brought this to the fore. The first is we need to remain rooted in prayer. The second is that we need to be upfront when we say that we're challenging earthly power in pursuit of God's justice. We shouldn't be afraid to say that God's justice outweighs obedience to earthly laws. We need to tell people that by doing something visible, we're being witnesses to our faith. 
and that this leads to both direct and indirect engagement with the public. And we need to build community. We need to bring people together in a commonality of vision and the ability to support each other as a tribe that upholds them in their activist activism. So I hope, I, I know I've just gone over David, but I hope that's okay. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie. So it's now my pleasure to introduce uh, Mafia Raman. Um, sorry if that's a surprise, Mafia, because you weren't present when we agreed the order um, in the waiting room. Um, so Mafia Raman is a founding member of Muslims Declare, an initiative working with community leaders, Islamic scholars, activists and the public to develop Muslim-oriented environmental programmes. He is also the founder of New Economy Law and teaches part-time at the University of Law. Mafia, you're currently on mute, just to let you know. Thanks. Thanks, David. Um, how long do we have each? Sorry, I didn't catch how much. 10 minutes is the aim, with right. room to go over by a minute or two. Yeah, no, I'm re really looking forward to the uh, sort of bringing other perspectives in. So Muslims Declare um, uh, grew out of um, XR Muslims as well. So there's a big, strong foundation with with the movement of uh, Extinction Rebellion sort of bringing to the fore this truth-telling capacity or need that Melanie was speaking about. And for myself, I came into um, the movement uh, from that angle because of the Archbishop of Canterbury, actually. His, his, um, uh, there was an article in The Guardian about two years, about just when the IPCC report on the 1.5 degrees came out and saying there was a moral obligation to act in civil disobedience. And it was that sense as a lawyer as well, like to act in obedience to the law, you, th you thinking the, the law will get you, will, will, you know, the structures are there to get you to uh, um, a sufficient. And then having someone of a stature to say, actually, we need to act in disobedience because the law is no longer sufficient, gives a moral permission to act. And I think that moral permission for is, is there as on an individual level, but what we've been trying to do within Muslims, examples, but now broaden to this coalition to Muslims declare a, um, a climate ecological emergency is to broaden it to how do we create the narrative which maybe there more which is there in the quran to to, to an extent and um but hasn't necessarily been strongly promulgated within the faith leaders to that extent that the the aim on the orientation of faith as a marginal faith you could say within a majority or, or at least a state religion of Christianity where Islam is the minority and is often on the back foot in terms of the media and so on where everyone is really stressed in terms of, 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 of even just carrying out their faith is uh, it gives it a very different context I think and, and that's kind of my sort of realization over the last couple of years is understanding the context by which spirituality faith is experienced within the Muslim communities on the ground and how then to work from where they are and, and try to, to, to meet them where they're at. Um, I wanted to share with you a, um, a declaration which, ex which Muslims declare is supporting, which is um, a, uh, UNEP, uh, a UN program on education, which is a covenant uh, by a number of scholars, um, including uh, Kamran Shazad, who's a big uh, um, supporter of Muslims Declare, and which um, the pilgrims and um, we met, they, they have their mosque in, in Birmingham. And uh, I met up with Melanie, the other pilgrims there, and we had a, a gathering there. But Kamran's behind, one of the scholars behind this. And it is a huge, uh, you know, some, at a very high level, but at the same time, Kamran has come back and said been, he's been sending it out to a number of organizations and leaders and he was disappointed at the lack of um, holding by other other by Muslim leaders and that's you know it, it is it's something to, to, yeah, to, to, to say why isn't it gathering force and maybe the question that was raised was around um, 
obedience. Um, uh, exact, I can't remember the exact question, but the, um, what came to my mind was around obedience. And this sense, and I have this, what, what, what Melanie was talking about, about Jesus and, and, and who's also one of the prophets in, in the Muslim tradition, is that what he was, and, and it's something that I've been seeing about institutionalized inequality, is that orthodoxy, in a way, is the enemy of truth. This sense that there is an orthodox way that becomes the tradition, that becomes the institution, that everybody, and then as, you know, as power holds on, it becomes the way that you can't get out of because you have to follow that tradition or you've and the tradition within islam has in in how they and how the verses and ayahs are interpreted um has a lot to do with with how your your personal um purification and uh, for example i was in one of the a meeting um uh around faith and, and climate uh, justice and the question was raised you know um, how do we bring awareness to this to the Muslim community and someone else said well you know we have to um, this is this life is only a test for the second for the next life the afterlife and so a lot of Muslims their attention and focus is on that this is actually the um, it's not necessarily this is you know the, the breakdown is the is the end of days and so you know we've just got to keep our attention on on our own personal purification and so how um, the words are in for, for me. I, I'm seeing what what this Al Mizan is doing is bringing another interpretation to some of the core concepts that are there. In and, and it's almost like we have to, or not we, but the Muslim community has to embrace these concepts. Like amana is this concept of trust, um, and a lot of the tradition uh, interprets that trust amana as as okay. It's the trust of these acts of faith you prayer five times a day god's given allah's given this 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 covenant to you to to carry out these acts of faith in your uh, purification in your um, charity giving to according to these laws but to broaden that concept as this al-mizan is doing to talk about the the trust that is the covenant between um uh, the, the abrahamic you could say the moses covenant between the faith of of um uh the covenant between humanity and god and and this that's what it, it and the balance that is created that talks about the al-mizan the balance and so bringing these concepts of balance that the, everything is out of balance because we haven't kept the trust this original trust is something i think that joins many of the faiths but it's also an interpretation that isn't necessarily within the islamic tradition as well that's well um uh that, that isn't held well and i'm just going to bring also this um because this this idea carries across many different ways that we look at texts that we look at and um uh so uh, as a kind of pure as a kind of purity a kind of fundamentalism of like you need to go back to the original text and quran has that in a lot because it is see it is the the word of the original word but look when we think for example in law uh, the, there's a huge movement in America where same with the constitution, they shouldn't be looking at the constitution in a way that interprets it according to justice now, it should be interpreted only according to how the original founders understood it. And that kind of form of purif purity and fundamentalism carries across many different traditions, I think, and, uh, and also in Islam. And so how we can begin to think of um, Justice, because the, the, I mean, Islam, Muhammad, peace be upon him, there was a, a strong sense of social justice in that, in, in, in his actions in, uh, and in the Quran, but a lot of that is now, isn't necessarily seen um, um, or brought forward, particularly as many Muslims, and I'm as a diasporic Muslim where you're in a um, minority faith, it, it, it doesn't have, um, there's, it's much harder to take that political participation of disobedience when you're 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 already on the back foot so to speak so that um, seeing the intersectionality um is, is an important element and so meeting um how how we can gather participation um and engagement um by gathering people together to be able to have the dialogue to really understand the uh, uh, the text and uh, of the quran and, and find ways of interpreting and seeing it um, that gathers the people together. Um, 
so there's a connection between the Quran as um, Al-Kitab, um, the book, um, um, as it's called Al-Kitab Al-Mastur, which is the inscribed book, and Ayah means the verses, and there's a lot of the verses in the Quran which says that what we see in observation is what gives us the faith. Um, so Al-Kitab Manzur, the observed book, is what we observe in nature. So there's this connection there and to really to bring people back out into nature to see and to feel that connection, to be rooted in the, to be rooted in prayer that is prayer that connects us to our, what's called fitra, the original purity of our own human nature. And one of the verses in the Quran that's really, um, and in the kind of tradition that um, I'm connected with, one of the, my teacher brought this um, um, this verse, um, uh, which is "Wa'amnu um, wa'amilu salihati," which um, Melanie mentioned about rooted in prayer. And this this ayah says in the whole ayah is, um, "We will all, mankind will always be lost unless they root themselves in." And they back, they go back to this word trust where it's put down as belief. And so it's kind of interesting because I, yeah, the, when you speak about belief, it goes back into, oh, it's just about, um, you know, the righteous Muslim group talking about what their beliefs are. But actually when you talk about the original word, it's about faith. It's about going back to this sense, the inner sense of uh, justice or connection um, to, to the inner and outer experience when we are rooted um, in the heart. And there's another verse in the Quran which says that um, hearts, are, it's not that the hearts, the eyes are blind, it's the heart that grows blind. So connecting into the heart that way. So mankind will always be root, will be, will always be lost unless they root themselves in prayer and through, the, uh, through faith, uh, with the trust, with the sense of trust and act through deeds that repair and reconcile. Um, and that's often, again, translated as righteous deeds. There's something because when, when righteous deeds are used as the, as the translation, it doesn't connect with me at all. But when my teacher translated it and goes back to the root of the meaning as acts that repair and reconcile, it adds a much deeper meaning. So there is something about trying to really understand the meaning and contextualize them for, for ourselves so that we can root ourselves uh, together in prayer. Um, I think I'll finish there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. I'm now going to be introducing Alan, just trying to find you on the, the roster of participants so I can pin you to everyone's view. So next I'm introducing Alan McFetridge, um, who is a photographer who's been awarded the Royal Photographic Society's Environmental Awareness Bursary and has been shown at the National Portrait Gallery and the Royal Photographic Society amongst others. His current quest is to understand dispossession through photography, resulting in an extensive body of work based on field experiences in the fiery landscapes of Canada, Australia, and Greece. In 2021, he has founded the Center for Ecological Philosophy. Alan, I hand over to you. Thank you very much, David. Thank you very much, David. And, uh... And also thanks to the other speakers here tonight. It's really a privilege to be amongst you. And I've really enjoyed uh, hearing the, the two speakers uh, previously and, and going on to the next as well. It gives me great pleasure to be able to speak about something that's very close to my heart. And I've kind of gone about that through immersing myself in the field. And my study of fire started five years ago and it's weaved its way through three different continents. And what I'm finding is that the more time I spend in the field, the more time I'm beginning to understand quite deep concepts about the virtues of earth. Um, so I'm gonna speak a little bit about that tonight. Um, and I'm also gonna go uh, in with a question. I have a question with you, uh, for you to begin with. Um, and then I'm going to talk about some of the changes that I've noticed in the field um, and then and then we'll go into some pictures and uh, I'm going to show you one of one of the most exciting points of, of the project um, that really changed uh, my perspective on 
uh, how we might be able to interact with the world that's around us. So uh, it's the first time I've shown it to anybody, so um, I'm really excited to show that to you tonight. So let's get going. Uh, I've got a question. Um, you're welcome to either send it to me in, in, a, in a chat or um, I'm not sure how we can do this, but um, I'd actually like to, to ask you the question from the audience if there's someone there who, um, who can offer an example of what has worked for you in, uh, in, in raising awareness. Give it a few minutes. Perhaps that's something um, you can have a think about and we can ask uh, later on. I certainly didn't mean to put you on this. Oh, here we go. Here's a question. Yeah, great. Hello. Did you have a question? Sorry. Would you be I'm interested not, in answering the question? Sorry. I'm not sure. Who, is someone, who, who is it, um, Alan? Who? Okay, well, well, we'll move on with that. Sorry. <laughs> Please feel free to, to speak later and in, in um, ask a question later in, in, uh, in the breakout rooms. Because I'd, I'd, I'd like to know what it, what it is like from from your perspective. So that's the reason for that question. But let me tell you something uh, that really kind of scares me. And um, Christo, although I didn't know his name at that stage, he raised a right hand up like that. His fist was big, like a club, and I could see the whites of his knuckles. And then he grabbed my left arm and dragged me in like this. And he said, if you don't come with me now, I'm gonna put you on the floor. And the reason this scares me is because it was the first time that I had experienced a warlike attitude um, that had organized village people, normal village people like Christo, to in, into a militia to go out into the field and find threats. And in this case, it was an artist up on top of a hill observing fire from a distance. And what I felt had really changed there was a sort of a threshold that, that, was, that was taking place. And I, and I, and I, I know there's, there's sort of difficulties with this, um, this, in this sort of state of fear. Because previously, in my work uh, with fire, uh, I've, I've seen so much been, been so much uh, so much so much feeling that was was good. There was a sense of the benign. I've seen fire for dancing. I've seen fire for prayer. I've seen fire to regenerate. And even if it's most catastrophic, where an entire town has been leveled, there's a sense of the human spirit coming through to bind, to bring people together and work really hard at getting through in a, some incredibly difficult situations. So that doesn't, when I see this, that doesn't scare me at all. This gives me hope. So my question is, how can we organize ourselves adequately to face this existential challenge and to overcome it? Who is going to be bold enough adventurous enough to take it on adequately, properly. So to answer the question, raising awareness of the climate crisis in your community, what works, what doesn't, um, we'll take a look at some pictures from my study. And David, if you could be so kind as to put on the first slide, please. And it's just the introduction, so we can go straight into the next picture. Just, uh, Sorry, I'm just I just think. having an issue. Bear with me. Is that right? That's it. So in these pictures, uh, change is present. 
um, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at them in two ways, as either a progressive linear change that corresponds to human concepts of progress, or as linear circular changes arising from age, uh, the age of cycle of death and renewal within natural law. And these changes can be perceived as threats and dangerous, or as surety and benign uh, with, as an individual or through society. In My Blood is related to them, you can see a number of changes taking place on the landscape. There's an abrupt change in the foreground where the charcoal wood hits up against the soft straw grasses that go into a kind of a gully that perhaps there's water down there, but there's certainly snow that's either melt, it's melting in some way or it's forming. So we can see there's a change from one type of, uh, one type of activity in the foreground, then it's changing, and then we have the melting snow. So we could be in the middle of autumn or we could be in the middle of spring. And the, the trees in the foregrounds kind of present a sort of a, an unsteadiness, if you like, and that's accented by the, by the line going across the bottom of the composition as well which leads into this enormous flattened area with these three huge piles of earth at, on the back of them. So I see two, two, and that represents a different kind of change, uh, a mechanical change, an industrialized change, and that's very different from what you might see in a fire. So in this sense, there's two, I can categorize this as two separate ty types of change. There's the linear change that's occurring through the machinery, uh, with the idea of progress and the, the cyclic change, um, which has happened as a result of fire going through this area. And this is, this is a fire aftermath. Uh, next, next slide, please, David. And here is a, uh, in this uh, Know Your Species Best, um, this is a, another kind of metamorphosis. The rake ground in the foreground, it's, there's a sort of solidity in the ice there and the the sharp stones that are poking through it, which have been graded across with, an, with the machine. And the houses are kind of set right back there. And although there are only two houses in the picture, we can imagine what this might look like in one year or two years or three years when there's an entire suburb there. And right at the very back of the picture, you see the edge of the forest, the threshold, which probably not too long ago would have been uh, taking up the entire foreground. And I think this is a really good example of, of this sort of linear change where you, you, you can sort of see this trajectory of the future and, and, and perhaps it's not a cyclic. Eventually the, the houses will, will, will come down, but it's not as cyclic as the next uh, frame. If you could uh, please turn to the next frame, David. Thank you. The heart of earth is, the heart of, the heart of the earth is gold. And the grass here is almost as though it's by the hand of a calligrapher. And snow delineates, the grasses delineates the snow. You can see the seeds ready to fall or having fallen down already into the earth below. And there's a slowing coming of winter. There's a slowing down. There's a, the natural sense of hibernation as, the, as our blood as our, and the sap and the movement slowly goes into a different state during the winter. And of course, uh, these grasses will perish, but we know that there are seeds in the ground and this will, uh, the following cycle, and which will follow a cycle of renewal. And, um, and this is what I would categorize as, um, as an annual or, or circular, circular change, cyclical change. It's quite peaceful in that way because we have trust in it. And there is a treaty uh, in this area, which is written by the First Nations people that signifies eternity and, uh, and the trust of these long form cycles. And it goes along this, lines, this line, as long as the sun shines and the grass grows and the river flows. Um, so if we were to look at these sort of annual cycles, what would happen if we extended that to say 100 years or 1,000 years, 10,000 years? A hundred thousand years. How does that? What would that look like if these two types of changes acted out in different ways? Um, if you would, you be able to go to the next slide, please, David. And here we see uh, in 
The fire itself we have made wary. An ecology which shows a habitat that was founded by an empire about 2000 years ago, as they crossed the water and expanded through invasions. And these structures show how the long form manifestation of societies that embrace change, uh, linear change, uh, and the application of human law to support this. So the next slide I'm going to show you was really, uh, you can uh, go, go over now, David, really, uh, it was, this is a, a crucial moment in, in my work where uh, I began to understand a different, totally different way of operating. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that we go back in time and live, uh, live like it was a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. But I think there are some very, 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 very important lessons that can be learned by looking at this picture. Because what we see here um, is an ecology that shows a habitat that was founded by people somewhere between 60,000 and 100,000 years ago. They have remained domiciled without, within a single landmass without the need to expand their territory in any way. And, they, and this was done by outlawing fundamental change and adherence to the natural law. Now, what's really staggering about this picture is that everything that you see there is as modified as, by humans as the previous picture. Both images are absent from the concept of wilderness because, because of that very reason. So one of the major uh, elements in order to control the landscape was fire. So this particular culture, and I'd be, in, and I tell you what, to stand there and see those kids, I was living with them at the time and I was taken into this environment through invitation. It's actually a place where uh, white people can't go unless there's an invitation. Uh, you, you know, the joy in those kids was just phenomenal. And I think for any parent to be able to, you know, see their kids be able to have this in, enjoyment in, in the landscape and freedom was really, was really quite something. So Alan, Alan, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but soon to wrap up. Yeah, I will do. Sorry, I get a bit excited. So in raising awareness for the community, what works and doesn't work? Um, fear. Fear does not work. Human behaviors are very much, very much unlikely to change when problems are presented in ways that raises fear and anxiety. And this is also likely to cause division. What does work? Hope. And this is the opposite. Human behaviors can change and incredible feats become accomplished and hope also creates unity. Blind hope is not enough. Uh, what I've found is that having a clear vision with action helps a great deal to remain focused and positive. And this is why I see the value in establishing a role for, the, for ecological philosophy to guide sanctionable modern laws to protect the rest of nature. And as poet Zygmunt Herbert writes, how can we live anywhere else but under this one tree? Thank you. Thank you, Alan. So um, my pleasure to welcome Dr. Chester Bry, um, who founded the Sikh Human Rights Group an NGO with UN ECOSOC status, promoting pluralism, environment, diversity, human rights, responsibilities. He has written academic papers on ethics, um, anti-terrorism, freedom, freedom of conscience, conflict resolution, and Sikh philosophy. He's also developed and written a critique on universalism for UNESCO in the ethics agenda of UNESCO. Um, welcome, Chastev. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me here. Um, very interesting. Uh, what works and what doesn't. Uh, although the climate and environment issues are now center stage due to the many calamities taking place around the world, the relationship of human to the environment is not a new science, but as old as human society. Understanding of climate is also ingrained in many cultures and farming communities. Almost every region, religion, belief system or culture has had ideas, even rituals and practices on human connection with the environment. Most cultures have a reverential approach to the environment and understand that excessive exploitation of nature leads to disasters. 
Some communities who are highly dependent on their natural environment have festivals and practices that seek to thank nature and earth for its perpetual support of all life. There are different concepts uh, too, you know, in um, the discourse on uh, uh, in the environment, there is anthropocentric, ecocentric, biocentric, cosmocentric, and briefly, I think you probably all know that anthropocentric is where humans take the mantle of custodianship, ecocentric where it is held that the whole ecosphere, both organic and inorganic, and inorganic is source of all existence. In the biocentric is that human is just one of the millions of species and no more important to the environment than any other. And the cosmocentric is a worldview that takes a wider perspective that the earth is just one in millions of planets, universes and life forms in the cosmos, thus with no special place. The Sikh position is closer to the cosmocentric idea. Well, what has changed in the last two centuries is a move away from uh, many long-held ideas and practices to a dependency on reason and science as the explainer, explainer of all human relation to the environment. While science is very important in understanding many mechanical aspects of the universe, the environment and life forms, it doesn't really help in the evolution of ethics or culture practices, nor does reason in itself offer that scope. One person's reason is another person's danger zone. If I'm running a government, I might think that cutting down a forest for agriculture purposes to feed the population is a re reasonable necessity. On the other hand, if I'm a nature lover, I might think that maintaining the forest is a necessity. If I was from an indigenous community that lived in a forest and has an entire culture dependent on the forest, I might consider the deforestation a sacrilege. And if I am a climate scientist, I might be writing papers on why deforestation will lead to an own goal for the government. So reason is not a reliable approach to the environment. Uh, every interest group may have a different reason to cut down a forest or preserve it. For instance, a large agribusiness might find small scale farming practices highly expensive. It cannot afford hedges and trees every few acres. It might decide to set aside a small area for trees and bushes, but that does not stop soil erosion or help the climate, natural fauna, etc. Small-scale farmers often create boundaries with hedges and trees that stop rainwater stripping away topsoil, and further the hedges and trees act as windbreakers, place for birds and bees, etc. The international movement on climate change and environment is, uh, however, largely based on secular reasoning. From about 50 years ago, when it started promoting unmitigated development and food security, its pendulum is swinging the other way now to protecting the environment and climate. As an organization, we notice that almost all United Nations conventions, declarations and proceedings were based on necessity of the time. It is also based on the approach of one civilization that is a Judeo-Christian approach of custodianship and fear. Uh, the UN, of course, doesn't do God, but fear of the future, whether the future famine at one time or climate disaster now, it is a theme that runs through its language in many proceedings. It was obvious in the COP26 as well. The approach is fine and it works for certain communities, but it doesn't work everywhere and in many other cultures. Take an average Indian who may not have had the benefit of modern education. To tell that Indian that the world is going to end in three decades unless we change our habits has little impact. The Indians generally believe that their souls reincarnate and some Indian belief systems have long held the, uh, the view that there are thousands of universities, so we didn't need science to tell us. That Indian will probably look puzzled and say, if that is the karma of the world, what can I do? My soul will reincarnate in some other universe. Well, you see, the whole UN system just doesn't have any empathy with it. This was an argument represented to a body <clears throat> that was formed by the UN Secretary General that was to draft universal ethics of environment. We oppose the idea of universal ethics. We argued that ethics are quite specific to cultures and different cultures have different perspectives on the environment. We showed through our analysis how most of the world cannot empathize with many UN conventions and approaches. We suggested that UN adopt targets to reduce carbon, but encourage cultures to develop their own ethics and strategies to encourage civil society to comply with these. Going on with the language of doomsday doesn't convince nearly two thirds of, if not more, of the world, be it Confucius, African Ubuntu, Hindu Vedanta, or the Sikhs. In our opinion, that is a problem with the environmental debate. It's almost as if only one part of the globe is concerned, while the rest are oblivious. 
uh, to what is going on. Opposition is that the rest of the world is just disengaged from it, except their elites. Their culture practices and their referential approach to the environment has been replaced by logical approach to their highly by their educa highly educated modern elites. Uh, they run the governments and the governments then have their own interests. The same environment was to be exploited to its limits for development, and now the same environment has to be protected to stop further climate degradation. What it needs needed, in our opinion, is a change in the way the climate debate and environmental campaigns are conducted. They need to ask, why is the rest of the world disengaged? Has it been marginalized? Has it been disenfranchised from the hegemonic approach? Does it really matter to the very poor people around the world whether the world ends in three decades or one decade if they're still trying to get a meal a day and their culture is not respected? The climate debate has to be inclusive, not in inclusive of people of different colors and nationalities, but different cultures and practices. Let's take the Sikh teachings on climate. The Guru Granth Sahib, uh, the text we uh, consider as a living guru, says, Pavan Guru Pani Pita Mata Tart Mahat. Pavan means air. So we are told the air is the guru. While Sikhs get quite cross if there is a sacrilege of the Guru Granth Sahib, there doesn't seem to be any concern if there is abuse of the air as guru. Pani is water, Pita is father. So we are told treat water as father. It has been a Sikh position for a long time, for nearly 600 years, that life evolved from water. And Tart is earth, Mata is mother. So we are extolled to treat the earth as mother. Now, I doubt many Sikhs treat water or earth with the same reverence as they treat their parents or the air with the same reverence they treat the Granth Sahib. At one time, they did. So most Sikhs, like most of the rest of the world, grow up in, grow up in uh, modern education. They are engaged in a rational world that treats cultural practices, idiosyncrasies of that community. There's no deeper significance attached to those traditional attitudes and wisdoms and practices that have kept the earth providing and self-sustaining for thousands of years until now when it has been pushed to a critical position. The point is not that we discard modern education, but that we start looking at the wisdoms that have existed for a long time in different cultures, nurture them and encourage them, rather than dissect them through the lens of one hegemonic discourse that has dominated the world, modern world. The climate is now at a crucial stage and too important for hegemonic politics. We need to take a pluralistic approach, and that's been our position at the UN, but even, and I think it didn't even work at uh, COP26. There was only one sort of approach, look, we are going to end, something is, the world is going to end, let's take an action. I, I give you two examples in uh, Punjab in India, for instance. There's a, a chef called Baba Seva Singh. He's planted 700,000 trees uh, in and around the farms in about 10, uh, about 20 mile uh, radius. And it's influenced those farmers who normally fight for every inch of land to take one of the, uh, um, the trees from the, uh, the nursery and plant them and revert them. Now, he's never used the language, the world is going to end, we must protect the climate, we must do this. He's got a very different approach and he says, look, uh, we in, the, in our Sikh teachings have a relationship with the plants, have a relationship with the environment, and why have you taken it out from your farms? So they come and take uh, the tree from or the shrub from his, uh, his nursery and they plant it. There's another chap called Baba Shisha Singh and he has managed to clean a lot of the rivers in, in the Punjab. Again, it wasn't uh, by saying this dirty river is going to create a, a lot of um, hygienic issues, et cetera. His approach was again, very different. And his approach was that, look, you know, this is where other gurus came at one time. Why are you uh, desecrating these rivers? So. It's interesting how thousands of people went and cleaned the river. Uh, so the point is uh, the, the UN's approach and the international approach and the climate debate is all one-sided. And unless we take a more pluralistic approach and make other cultures, not the elite of the other, other communities, more inclusive, I'm not, I don't think this is uh, the current uh, politics is, uh, is delivering. But I, I, I mean, that's the, the message. We, we produced this book for uh, the UNESCO uh, based on that in which we analytically looked at all the convention and we thought, well, which part of the world are you talking to and which part of the world you think is, uh, is the climate change affecting? It seems only the West is affected. What about the rest of the world? And, and, and it was interesting, the body that was set up to create, to set up the universal ethics of environment, took on board that argument and said, yes, we should uh, 
the UN should be concentrating on goals and not uh, go around making ethics for the rest of the world. It's different cultures, civilizations have to make their own ethics and how they relate with the environment. Thank you. I'm now going to introduce, uh, welcome back everyone. Um, I'm now going to introduce uh, Katya Berendt, who is a, a Buddhist based in London. She's part of the Tri Ratna Buddhist community and the Tri Ratna Earth Sangha, bringing together people interested in climate change from the same tradition across the globe. She is also one of the coordinators of Extinction Rebellion Buddhists, a group of Buddhists from different traditions aligned with the Extinction Rebellion. Katja trained as a doctor in Germany and is working in the NHS. I'll hand over to you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it, yeah, it's been great to listen to all of you. And um, I've just been thinking how to follow on from that. I'm really, it makes me really glad to be um, at an event like this with people from different faith and beliefs, because I fundamentally think that the climate crisis is a spiritual crisis. It's a crisis of being disconnected, of um, alienation. And um, I think uh, the, what we're seeing, like the overconsumption, the need to, uh, to, for endless growth, I think these are all symptoms of that. And I think as people of faith and of beliefs, we do have um, yeah, we do have a sort of like superpower, so we have part of the antidote of that. So I've been asked to uh, bring a Buddhist perspective to this, and I just want to say while I am a Buddhist, um, I'm obviously not representative of Buddhists, not even of the Buddhists in the UK, um, who are mostly uh, or in the majority of Asian heritage, while I'm a white woman born in Germany um, who has joined a Buddhist convert movement. But I am a practicing Buddhist and I can offer my perspective uh, from where I sit. And maybe it's good to start with the Buddha. Um, because the Buddha was a social revolutionary, he did uh, fundamentally um, treat people as equal. Um, he talked uh, to women, men across different social uh, uh, classes and castes um, from different educational levels. And he taught them all. Um, women were allowed to become part of uh, the Sangha, the spiritual community. Um, and he uh, really was against a discrimination of any kind, particularly caste discrimination. And so I think as that, that I think that's a good basis to, to start from. There are um, not many um, examples of the Buddha doing direct action. I think there is one story where he's sort of like going between two uh, um, uh, sort of like enemy parties in a conflict. Um, but I think, yeah, he was very much a revolutionary. He broke uh, some of the conventions of the time. And um, in this uh, talking to everyone in language that they can understand and in ways that relate to their life, um, I think that's been reflected throughout, um, I guess, Buddhist history across different, uh, we find that in different um, stories and figures, for example, uh, Vimala Kirti, who becomes ill with the sickness of the world, uh, so he can receive many guests who he can then in turn teach. And again, he teaches them all in ways that they can understand. So how does this idea of skillful means uh, look, um, look uh, in, I guess, in our situation? And um, I noted what, Melanie, what you said around like uh, some of the um, concerns you sometimes find around Christians, uh, um, around being, uh, wanting to be perceived as apolitical and the, um, the that it's sort of like all very individual. Um, and um, so for example, one key, I think one aspect really is to go back to the, the teachings and language that people can understand. And so for example, um, 
with relation to climate change, there has been uh, a work by uh, Bhikkhu Analio looking at the really early Buddhist teachings and looking at um, how they sort of uh, talk about the relationship to the earth and the relationship to, and what that might mean for facing climate change. And he arrives at a quite anthropocentric uh, um, uh, perspective, which is not his personal one, but it does help to talk with certain people who might follow, uh, um, who are bring, uh, or for whom the early Buddhist teachings are really super important. Um, so I guess that's that's one perspective. Um, for me personally, um, so that you, David, you've mentioned I uh, yeah I'm part of a um, a Buddhist movement, a Buddhist sangha community, and um, we have started to come together um, as people who are interested and do want to do something um, about climate change. And um, I think what's been really important there is in our sort of like strategic objectives to acknowledge that it's not just about what we do personally, it's not just what our centers or communities do. There is a system aspect to climate change that we also need to address. And, um, and um, some of us are quite happy to be involved in direct action, but not everybody is. And even of those who do consider direct action, um, not all of them want to join or be associated with Extinction Rebellion. And I think so there are different sort of like pockets and ways in which people can engage. So I guess the conversations I have are sometimes around not wanting to uh, be involved as uh, political. Um, and I think there it just helps to go back to the basic Buddhist teachings and showing that it's not separate, it's not nothing. Um, it's really our compassion for all life and all being also expresses itself in the way we, we care and sort of like um, it's, it's an, imperative, an imperative to act on climate change. Um, and then I'm um, having conversations around the ethics of certain kinds of protests. And I mean, it's quite interesting how Buddhism has been translated to the West uh, um, in a quite an idealist, uh, ide um, individualistic way. So often, I guess the classic sort of like stereotypical idea these days in Western Buddhism is of people practicing meditation somewhere behind closed doors. Um, and I think that's something that we that we need to challenge. And it's a fundamentally very different uh, practice to me practice meditation uh, and the protests uh, outside or somewhere where there is a bus, where it's not quiet, where there's maybe some tension because not everybody is happy with what you're doing. And um, I find that very fruitful. I've had some of my, I don't want to say my best meditation, but some very deep experiences in those situations. Um, but it is different from what many Buddhists do. And, um, and then I think what also helps um, talking to Buddhists, so Joanna Macy, who is like a um, very, very uh, a revered activist who practices the Buddhist teachings, she says there are three kinds of activism. So there's something about um, working, uh, working with our minds. There is an element of building the world we want to live in. And there is an element of holding actions. And often when we talk about protests, we only think about holding actions. But so when I talk to other Buddhists, I think it's really good to emphasize that by practicing, they're already doing the first two things. So they are kind of already doing some activism. So anyway, so we all have a stake in, in this. And I think finally, um, yeah, so I think finally, for me personally, um, it's, a, it's an, a, one of the important teachings is that we can take everything on the path. Uh, the way I practice mindfulness and compassion, it can be applied to absolutely everything. And so I can also bring this into um, my, uh, how I face climate change and into protests. So for me, protest is also a practice. 
Um, and I think that's where I'm going to leave it, just looking at the time. Thank you, Katya. Uh, thank you, everyone, um, for coming along and for speaking. So um, I said at the beginning, uh, showing the images of the wreaths that um, we made with some students earlier this week at the university, um, and that maybe this would be another kind of wreath making. So I was just looking at my notes uh, across the five speakers this evening and thinking that we really do have a very varied terrain um, and a varied kind of material that's been brought this evening. Um, what I've highlighted is um, that for Melanie, uh, prayer and practice um, were, were the highlights um, and also the emphasis on truth-telling as, as a practice of prayer and truth-telling. Um, for Mothia, there was this emphasis on textual roots, looking at where uh, the roots of um, orthodoxy lie and what the role of interpretation is um, in terms of the potential for alternative or even radical interpretations that might uh, find a route to connect with others. With Alan, we had this integration of image and insight into what's actually happening in front of our eyes. So the visual aspect that he brought this evening. Um, and with, with Just Ev, there was the elements arising, uh, particularly the air, the water and the earth in this case. And that, that in these elements, which are always a great symbolic material in many traditions, in my experience, um, that there's also a way to find our ethics, to affirm our ethics in the elements, but also to to learn about those ethics perhaps from those elements as well. And then Katya, I, I was struck particularly there by the concept of integration of different kind of layers or components of activism. And that um, reminded me as you know, a fellow Buddhist of uh, the three wisdoms of, of hearing, uh, contemplation and meditation, but that perhaps action is a fourth one, which is a controversial thing to say perhaps, 